thanks very much. It's great to be here. Um, it's great. I've just, uh, I have to admit, I'm fairly jet lagged. I just spent six days in Seoul, and prior to that, I was in the US, so I really have no idea what time it is. So I'm going to try to make this as coherent as I can. And the question that I've got is oh, I can see it there. Is the simplicity of the evidence period pyramid actually detrimental to understanding evidence? And of course, I think it's a rhetorical question, and the answer, I think, is yes. I think this, the evidence pyramid is very problematic, and I think epidemiologists, of which I am one, have a lot to answer for, for this um, evidence pyramid and uh, its problems. So I just want to acknowledge that my... Uh, uh, I have a colleague who I've discussed this with, and her name is on it, but any of the good ideas are hers and any of the bad controversial ideas are mine because she's not here to defend herself. Um, I also want to acknowledge that uh, my graduate student, Jonah Cullen, uh, did some of the work that's in this, and his, his paper is published now in Preventive Veterinary Medicine. So he was an absolutely outstanding graduate student who challenged me on this idea, and, and so much of the work, the credit goes to him. The evidence pyramid. So there are just hundreds of these evidence pyramids, but they have pretty much the same idea. What's interesting, though, um, so they're all sort of, you know, systematic reviews on meta-analyses at the top, but what I want to focus on is this evidence pyramid for the primary studies, right? So I'm not talking about the synthesis. I'm talking about how you assess the evidence of the primary studies, which are then you're going to put in your synthesis product. And whether that's a critical appraisal of a topic or a knowledge summary or whatever, I'm more interested in these bottom layers, right? I'm not, and the ones I'm interested in are the cohort case control cross-sectional case series. So they've sort of Got them there. Here's another one. It's cohort case control case series. Interestingly, none of yours had case control studies on them. I'm not sure <laughs> why that was. Um, and here's another one that's got uh, case controlled studies lumped in with case series. And I want to talk about two issues. One is that I think this issue of the single case control study is really problematic and it is really leads to poor understanding of the value of some of the studies that we're using. And then I also want to discuss uh, what, what's happening in veterinary science. So everyone's sort of comfortable with this idea. So the, under, the theoretical underpinnings, I think, of this pyramid, and we went through the literature trying to find the theoretical underpinnings of this. It's pretty hard to actually get someone to nail down on it. Is it's sort of based on the idea that study design is an accurate indicator of the risk of bias or the validity or the quality of evidence. So you can map from the study design the sources of bias and sort of take this into account. Um, you know, but I would argue that actually the design elements, whether you match, whether you randomise, whether you restrict, uh, whether you use propensity scoring, what the design elements are actually what you can map to the validity or the risk of bias. And this idea of study design is distracting. The approaches to controlling the sources of bias that we know exist in research are what matter. So if we think about confounding, then we use randomization, matching, restriction, and sort of uh, advanced statistical approaches. Selection bias, there are some, you know, how do you reduce selection bias? In particular, I want to spend a little bit of time discussing Prevalence and incidence, which is not discussed enough at all in um, veterinary uh, studies, and then information bias. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this issue of prevalence and incidence, 
and I'm going to talk about case control studies. Because as you'll see here, case control studies are just one number, one word, right? And they're almost always considered to be less than cohort studies. And I think this is distracting and incorrect. So just let's clarify what cases are. Cases can be either incident, so they're new cases, or they can be prevalent. So, you know, this population, we could go into this population and we could find how many people have diabetes, and that would be a prevalence estimate, right? Or we could take the people who don't have diabetes and we could follow them over time and see who gets diabetes, and that's incident, right? They are hugely different measures, right? And this sort of epidemiological bathtub is a representation of those. So incident is the new cases dropping into the bathtub and, you know, that what's in here is a prevalence and what's affecting that is how many recover, if any, and what's death. Now, clearly, if you're studying the size, what makes this tap, that is enormously different to if you're studying the size of this pool, this bathtub, right? So when you go back to the evidence pyramid, there's no discussion about the difference between incidence and prevalence. It's just case control studies. So quick, um, we haven't got time for a huge lesson on, on case control studies, but we're going to have a bit of a quick lesson to a reminder about study design. So I'm not a big fan of case control, cohort, and cross-sectional terminology. I think it's distracting and not very useful. I prefer to think about studies that measure incidence and studies that measure prevalence. So this is the one that most people would be familiar with. This is an incidence study. I've got a population that doesn't have the disease at time one, time zero. Some of them are exposed and some of them aren't. And I'm going to follow them over time. And some people are going to get the disease, they're incident, and some people are not. And that's your full cohort study, right? Problem with that is it's fairly expensive. But the nice thing about it is it's great for determining the causes of disease. On the other hand, we can take case control studies that measure incidence, and there are actually three types. There's this one, which most of us are used to, which we have this cohort, and what we do is, if, for example, if we're using hospital records, we might take the first time we see a case, and that's an incident case, right? And so we might take those incident cases and then we sample those who don't have the disease at the time. So that is an incidence case control study and it's called cumulative sampling. And if you do that, you get the incidence odds ratio. Better is to have this cohort enumerated this way and to take a sample back here of the whole population and then follow over time if you can and get the cases. And for your controls, just take a sample from this source population. And now you have the distribution of the exposure in the underlying population. It's a subset, I grant you, but if you randomly sampled, it's equally as representative of the cohort study. So this case control study measures incidence case control it's, called, it's otherwise called a case cohort study, and it gives you a me measure of the risk ratio. And it's a very nice study design, and it's surprisingly common, right? 
And then the last one, which is by far the most common case control study used in veterinary science, is the incidence density case control study, where you take a case that arrives at the hospital and you match on time a control. And what you have here is risk sets. So as new cases come in, you take new controls. And what you're doing is matching on time and you're making the assumption that the distribution of exposure time in the controls is representative of the whole population. And so actually you get an incidence density rate ratio. Now, these studies are about incidence. And incidence is what we're interested in. What are the causes of new disease or what are the causes of successful treatment? On the other hand, we can study prevalence, right, which as I've discussed is let's go into a population at the time and look how many cases are prevalent. Now, prevalence studies are really nice for really one reason, for estimating the burden of disease. This is a cross-sectional study, right? Most of us are not interested in estimating the burden of disease. On the other hand, if you use a prevalence study for evaluating causation, you have a major problem in that you're not sure if there are factors that are associated with keeping some, a patient in the population that are different from keeping the, causing the disease. For example, there may be factors that cause someone to be a patient for a really long time that have nothing to do with causing the disease. So you end up studying factors that are associated with prevalence and survival rather than studying causes of the disease. And this is just a selection bias. If you choose to do this, what you're actually doing is a selection bias, right? Because what's happening is you are losing some of the incident cases. So none of these nuances are included in this error of evidence pyramid. It's just ignored. It's just case control studies. They're not as good, which is just not true. Some of these case control studies are nearly and probably as good and certainly more economical than a cohort study. And so in truth, they should be up here with cohort studies because they actually are. So the theoretical underpinnings, I would say, of this pyramid, these pyramids are problematic, right? It's overly simplified because the inference you can make from many case control studies is a lot better. Now, this matters because case control studies are used when there's limited amount of money and limited amount of time. And basically, from what I can tell, in small animal research, that's pretty common. Limited amount of money, limited amount of time, so case control studies are really important, really common, and they're treated as if they're not as good as study design, but they can be, and they actually are. And this evidence pyramid is detrimental to us using them properly. So as Rothman said in his nice paper about six misconceptions about research, the type of study should not be taken as a guide to a study's validity. And the evidence pyramid suggests that, and I think that's problematic. So that's the, that's the un theoretical underpinnings of the evidence pyramid, which I'm not really that keen on. But I think it actually gets a little bit worse when we think about how we actually apply that evidence pyramid when we're doing research synthesis. The pragmatic underpinnings of how we apply that evidence pyramid is that sometimes, and I would say many times, 
We filter out studies because they're low evidence. And in particular, we filter out case control studies and case series because they're not cohort studies. And I'm going to say that that is problematic because what happens if you're using an evidence summary, so you're looking at some abstract, you're either going to do a knowledge summary or you're just critically appraising a topic or you're doing a systematic review, you read the abstract, they say it's a case control study, it's out. Or they say it's a case report, it's out, right? So that's the underpin, you know, because of that evidence pyramid, that's what people do. Well, that relies on the idea that the authors know what the study design is, and it also relies on the idea that you know what the study design is, and that's problematic. So, bit of a pop quiz. Here we go. I'm not going to give a big lecture on study design, but let's do a few study designs and see what you think they are. So we're going to do case control studies first. So, here we go. Researchers go to a hospital records, find all the dogs who've had their teeth cleaned under anesthesia for the last... 10 years, there are 1,200 records. Within they group, that group, they find 100 cases with diabetes and 100 controls without diabetes, right? Everyone good with that? And then they evaluate if there's a higher risk of what I would call a rough recovery from anesthesia if the cases, in the cases versus the controls, right? Is that a case control study or is that a cohort study or is that something else? Just person beside you, tell them what you think it is. Right, next one. Same thing, but this time, within the 1,200, the researchers find 100 dogs that have a rough recovery and 100 dogs without a rough recovery, and then they go and see, and I've got, I should have risk in parentheses, not diabetes, if the risk of diabetes is higher in the cases versus the controls. Was this a case control study, or is this a cohort study, or is it something else? Researchers go to the hospital records, they find all the dogs who have teeth cleaning, blah, 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 but this time they also want ones that have blood work, right, so of which there's only 500, and now they find 100 dogs with a rough recovery, and they call them the cases, and they find 100 dogs with rough without a rough recovery, and they then call them, them the controls, and then they look to see if they have some liver threshold that some clinical pathologist told them, and whether that was indicative of who had a rough recovery or not. Is that a case control study? Okay, so I won't put you on the spot with each design, but who thinks there are three case control studies? Who thinks there are two? Who thinks there are none? Who thinks there's one? Which one do you think it is? Who wants to say? Who's confident? I wasn't. I find this really difficult. Okay, so it's problematic, isn't it? It's tricksy. This one... We had two, the first two studies. The first two examples, the question is, how is diabetes related to a rough recovery? One study enrolled based on the exposure, diabetes. So the first study is actually a cohort study. You had the diabetics and the non-diabetics, and you followed them through to see who got a rough recovery. The second one based, enrolled based on the outcome, which was whether you had a rough recovery or not, Right? So in truth, this study is a cohort study because it's the exposed and the unexposed that you followed over time. Notice, by the way, that the word retrospective here is useless because it refers to the approach to sampling the data. I really dislike that term even more. That's another whole discussion. This one is a case control study. Who found that a bit tricksy? 
Me too, right? My God, I had to go and read all these, and it took a really long time. This is why my student it was so good. What about this one? The threshold one, what's that? That's a diagnostic test evaluation. It's a two-gate diagnostic test evaluation. It's not even a case control study in the classic term that we think of. So, is this problematic? We went and found 100 self-described case control studies in the veterinary literature. How am I going for time? You'll tell me. Yep. 100 self-described case control studies. So the authors said it was a case control study. Right, So you're filtering through and you're going to go, not getting rid of it because I only want cohort studies. Right? Um, you know, in typical research, there were 553. These are actually, what did I just go back? Small animal studies and large animal studies. So it was a bit of a mix. We didn't restrict by the publication, so it's a variety of publications. They were just randomly sampled in the, that 10-year period from CABI or Medline. And what we ended up with, we had 553 and we randomly sampled 100 of those. And they all had, this is a case control study. Now, to start with, 17 of them were diagnostic test evaluations, the last one I told you. So that's 17% done there. So if you were looking for a diagnostic test evaluation, you're going to have problems finding them, if that's your approach. But now we've got 83 manuscripts that tell you that it's a case control study, and in truth, only 54 of them were. So roughly 50% of self-identified case control studies in veterinary science in our random sample were actually case control studies. And what's interesting is the vast majority of them are actually incidence density case control studies that measure incidence and therefore should be thought of to have very, you know, quite a high level of inference provided they're done well shouldn't be dropped down in this pyramid to be down near case control studies, right? So I'm not going to go into what these were, but 50% is a bit depressing if you think there's a potential you're going to get rid of half of your evidence. Because many of those that weren't were actually cohort studies. So half of the randomly selected self-described case control studies were case control studies, and many of them were actually incidence density case control studies, so they had good qualities with respect to inference. Now, what's the problem? The problem is that people think, and I can totally understand this, that disease is synonymous with case. If I have diseased and non-diseased, that means case control, and that's not true. What defines a case control study is sampling on the outcome, and the outcome may or may not be a disease, right? And also, cohort studies may have a disease as the exposure. So it's about sampling on the outcome, not about sampling on diseased and diseased and using case control as a synonym for diseased and not diseased. Now, you can't see this very well because it's small, but you can't rely on the authors to get the title right. These are the names that people use. My personal favourite is a randomised blinded case control study. That would be pretty awesome to try and whip that one up. Uh, there's another one over here that's a cross-sectional case control. That's pretty good. So it's really hard to tell from people's titles the study design they did, which means you've got to go read the whole paper, and that can be really difficult. Am I going okay? Cool. So problem that I have with this at the moment is this case control issue is 
problematic from a theoretical point of view because many of them are cohort studies. And on top of that, the way that we apply it means that we're potentially going to miss a lot of good studies. The second issue I have is case reports and case series. Well, surely we know what they are, right? We've got that one nailed down. Let's have a look at a few case control. Uh, let's have a look at a few case series. See if we can do a bit of a pop quiz with case series. So, a surgeon performs a new procedure on a life-threatening condition, gastric vulvus, on 20 patients, and 10, 10 patients survive. The surgeon prepares a description of all the treated patients and a follow-up with calculation of mortality risk. There's no comparison group. What is this? Is this a case series, a cohort, or something else? It will probably shock you for me to tell you that it's actually a cohort study that doesn't have a comparison because you can estimate the risk, right? It's not describing the cases in a case control study, right? It's not a great cohort study. It's not a cohort study that has a comparison, but you can estimate risk and therefore it's a cohort study. And that's one problem we have with the terminology cohort study. If you look in the human health, cohort study just means you can estimate risk and you can have cohort studies that have two groups so you can compare risk, which is nice. And you can also have a cohort study that has one group, which just gives you a baseline risk. So at the moment, our pyramid doesn't differentiate between those. So now we've got the same study, but this time they have the patients, the clinicians decide to compare to a historic group. So they compare risk. This is also a cohort study, but it has a comparison. So it's clearly better evidence than the prior one, but the evidence pyramid doesn't clarify that. Then there's this one, data collected from patients who had bone marrow depression at one clinic. Potential risk factors, including drugs known to induce bone marrow depression, were assessed on all patients. The clinicians assessed whether bone marrow depression was still present after two months among the patients who received one or two drugs used in the treatment. So the clinicians provide a description of the cases with bone marrow depression and the frequency of the potential risk factors. Case series or cohort? That one's a case series right? It's just a description of the cases. There's no estimation of risk. On the other hand, if they described a comparison of the risk of the persistent bone marrow depression after two months in the cases and calculated the absolute and relative risk, then it's a cohort study. So the ability to estimate risk is what defines a cohort study. And sometimes you have one group and sometimes you have two. And of course, two has more evidentiary value than one right? But the evidence pyramids don't take this into account at all. I'm going to skip over that one because it's the same again. So it'll be okay because surely in the veterinary literature we don't get these mixed up, right? Problem with the veterinary literature and identification of study design would be entirely limited to case control studies. It's okay. So we'll just take a random sample of 100 studies that identify themselves as case studies or case, no, case series or case reports. Now, these ones are definitely going to get filtered out, right? Because, you know, they're right at the bottom of the pool, right? That case reports, they're of no evidentiary value whatsoever. You can get rid of them, right? So my colleague Jan, she took 100 studies. She did just cats and dogs. I did a more broad, uh, a broader definition, but she did just cats and dogs, and they had to have the word case series in the abstract, right? 
So 13 studies were neither a case series nor a cohort study. In fact, they were just something else. They were case control, non-randomized trial, or a diagnostic test accuracy. So that's kind of problematic if you were looking for them. Then, of the 87 that remained, a fair few actually were just one group, right? So there were 16 that were only descriptive. There were 15 that were descriptive and then they had a, a novel diagnostic test or something. And then there were 14 that were actually cohorts, so they estimated risk of some kind. So these top ones are case series. This is a one-group control uh, cohort study. 37 of them actually had the cases, followed them over time looking for some event, right? Like I had my diabetic dogs and I followed over time to look for a rough recovery. So 37 of the 100 self-reported case series were actually cohort studies. But you wouldn't know it if you were filtering on the term case report. Um, and so then there were another five that were actually before and after studies. So they still had a comparison of risk before and after. So I think that I, there are problems with the evidence pyramid, right? First of all, I think there are theoretical problems with uh, theoretical issues underlying it with this idea that there is a single case control study and the same with the idea that there's a single cohort study, right? It needs to be more nuanced. That's a theoretical issue. Pragmatically, it's really on shaky ground if you can screen based on an author's definition of the study design. And I get this because I've read these papers and it's really hard to know what they did, right? There are a lot of studies where we just had no idea whether what they were measuring. So pragmatically, it's problematic. Screening based on study design is probably going to lead excluding relevant studies. And it, uh, but the problem is that then you have to access the full text and read it, which is going to be kind of exhausting and expensive and take more time, etc. So what's the solution? Well, I would say that the problem lies with epidemiologists, and I am one, right, and how we have taught study design traditionally. We have taught those three study designs, and I think it's problematic. There's a new approach that's been proposed by in human health, which talks about four types of study designs based on whether you are measuring incidence or prevalence, and then just simply whether you sampled on the outcome, which gives you incidence studies, which are cohort studies, prevalence studies, which are cross-sectional, and then it divides the case control studies appropriately into whether they're measuring incidence and prevalence. And then you can go ahead and think about all the sources of bias that you want to. And I know the idea of relearning study design is terrific, but I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm saying it's not your problem. I think it's our responsibility. I don't think it's practitioners' responsibility to work this out. We as epidemiologists, if there's any in the room, <laughs> have, to, have to step up to the plate and do a better job because we've oversimplified this. And when people actually come to use what we told them to do, we turn around and go, oh, by the way, that's not right because I taught you a really basic way. The evidence pyramid should be based on control of the sources of bias, confounding selection bias and information. It should take into account measure incidence and prevalence, and it should take into account the use of comparison group. And so those issues need to be built into the evidence hierarchy, I think. And I'm working on one, but I'm not going to present it here. These 
are problematic from a theoretical and a pragmatic point of view. So in answer to my own question, I would say yes. For a variety of reasons, the evidence pyramid has been and continues to be detrimental to how we assess the veterinary literature. I think we're overly critical of case control studies, which are an important economic and potentially much more useful source of information than we give them credit. And I'll be done there. <laughs>